Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hanson ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Bill Stout arrived at the International Terminal at JFK before noon. A chauffeur had taken him out to the airport to pick up a Russian man he'd exchanged letters with but never met. So the scenario was that I would invite this Russian over to talk about import-export art from Russia, and uh, he jumped at the chance. This was late June of 2000, a nice time to be in New York City. Central Park in full bloom, pleasant mornings and sweaty afternoons. Stout had built a solid career as an art professional in New York City, working at the Frick Collection on Fifth Avenue. He also taught graduate classes on the side and did some freelance consulting work, usually for wealthy clients looking to buy specific art pieces. So if you Googled me, I came up as a member of the art world. Stout was nearly 50 years old, of average build, wore glasses, a beard, and medium-length hair. He was in a suit, waiting in the terminal with a placard bearing the Russian's name. The Russian man walked off the plane, also dressed in a suit, even though he traveled all the way across the Atlantic, in coach. The two walked together to the waiting black car. During the ride to Manhattan, they exchanged the sort of pleasantries you'd expect at a first meeting. And it was just chit-chat about how was the flight and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, he, you know, looking out the window at New York and, yeah, so. But he was, he was up from the minute I met him. Up? Up. He was elated. Elated because the visitor thought a big payday could be around the corner. Stout could be his conduit to the American art market. Specifically, the Russian wanted to sell Pollock, ornate papier-mâché pieces specific to a region in western Russia. Usually, they're colorfully painted boxes or plates, often adorned with scenes from Russian fairy tales or religious images. It's one of the things that Americans buy and bring back from Russia. It's one of the things that they allow exported. The key is getting authentic pieces signed by the artist. Plenty of fake, mass-produced Pollock ends up in American tourist suitcases. 
their driver crossed into Manhattan, navigating midday traffic, eventually coming to stop at the Benjamin Hotel in Midtown. It was a historic, newly renovated boutique hotel with a wood-paneled lobby, warm lighting, and a popular restaurant on the ground floor. Stout had paid for the airplane ticket and booked the hotel reservation for his guest, wanting to convey a degree of seriousness. I wanted to impress him that I could afford to set up an import-export business, for one thing. So I couldn't do it on the cheap. Stout brought the Russian to the front desk and asked him to return to the lobby once he was done freshening up. So he came downstairs 20, 30 minutes later with a shopping bag. In the bag, there were five pieces of Pollock for Stout to inspect. There was an Easter egg. There was two boxes. There was a charger and a bowl. A charger, I learned, is a decorative plate that usually hangs on the wall. Stout briefly examined the goods. They were all legit. They were all legit because I told him that if he brings me fakes, it's over. So they were all um, very nice pieces. Stout handed the man two envelopes, one with $1,000 for the art, a good faith down payment of sorts. The other envelope had around $2,000 for per diem, since the man was planning to stay in town for about a week to hammer out the business plan with Stout. Or so he thought. All in all, he came off as a professional. A little haughty, but that was part of the presentation. I think it's also part of his natural demeanor. Their meeting wrapped up shortly thereafter. I said to him I had an appointment, and uh, I would meet him in the lobby, 6.30, I believe, for dinner. And um, I left the hotel and uh, never saw him again. The man who flew across the Atlantic with Russian baubles wasn't exactly who he purported to be. But neither was Bill Stout, the New York City art professional. It was a performance. I was creating a scenario, a storyline that was being played for a one-man audience. And when I walked away, I walked away. As they say on Broadway, limited engagement, one performance only. Yep, that was it. The Russian thought he was in New York to sell art, but he was going to be offered a different kind of deal. When Stout walked away for good, he headed out of the hotel and straight into an FBI vehicle parked nearby, where agents were waiting. A surveillance team had watched the encounter in the lobby. The team outside wanted to know... What did he say? What kind of mood is he in? Blah, 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 blah. I left them happy. Don't screw it up. From CBS News, I'm Major Garrett, and this is Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. Episode 6, The Art Dealer. Before Bill Stout's career in the art industry, he lived a wholly different professional existence. 13 years at the FBI. First, as a supervisor in the fingerprint unit. Did you ever fingerprint anyone of note? I did the uh, Watergate people. G. Gordon Liddy and the like. The, bur- yes, the burglars. They, they, came, they came past the desk. <laughs> 
Later, Stout was a language specialist in Slovak and Czech. While he was with the Bureau, his family did not know exactly what he did. Years later, after I left, my mother got a kick out of it when I told her I worked counter for an intelligence. And she was like, you? <laughs> yeah, Mom. <laughs> Fourteen years later, Stout had been brought back into the FBI fold for a special mission he did not fully comprehend. He knew it involved luring the Pollock dealer to New York. Beyond that, he wasn't totally sure why. I had inklings why they wanted him, but I couldn't have put a name to it. When you learned, what did you feel like? Combination of, oh my God, and good work. <laughs> that good work started with a conversation with an FBI buddy Stout knew from his time at the Bureau. He mentioned one day uh, that they were still looking for assistance from a former KGB person to um, help them with the mold detection, shall we say. This is, in essence, what the FBI and CIA had been doing for years in pursuit of the mole, pitching ex-KGB officers who might know something or someone and be willing to drop a dime. For a dime, of course. After the fall of the Soviet Union, some KGB officials suddenly found themselves out of a job, prime targets for American mole hunters. When the uh, KGB closed its doors... It reopened about nine months later under a new name, but with only about 60% of its staff hired back. So there were about 40% of their agents uh, and staff looking for a new career, and it's kind of hard to find a new career when you're supposed to be spying on the Americans. The FBI offer was up to a million dollars for information about breaches in the U.S. intelligence community. At first, the FBI codenamed the program Bucklure. Later, it became Operation Pennywise. One agent pitched nearly 30 former KGB officials, to no avail. Nothing had worked. Desperation set in. Cases went unsolved, and years went by. The million-dollar pitches continued even as the aggressive investigation into innocent CIA man Brian Kelly ground on. The FBI was confident Kelly was the mole but not confident enough to stop looking for more leads. So they kept approaching potential sources. The man who arrived with his Russian art? He was next on the list, a former senior officer in the KGB who the CIA identified and the FBI wanted to talk to. The Russian had served as a Soviet diplomat in Washington in the mid-'80s and at KGB headquarters in Moscow. But his post-KGB business ventures were floundering. He was in debt and needed a lifeline. The FBI did not know what he had to offer, only that he was ripe to be pitched. And what better place than the Big Apple? The FBI had Bill Stout to thank for that. And for his work... I got $500. What? <laughs> what? I got $500. For my acting role. <laughs> oh, and five pieces of Russian art, which he had to hand over to the FBI. At this point, you're probably wondering why we haven't identified this ex-KGB Russian art dealer by name. 
In our reporting, we met numerous former senior FBI and CIA officials who would not reveal his identity. I wouldn't talk about it. It's very sensitive. There's not much we can say about it. It's still, to me, something I can't really talk about. I don't think it needs to be said. They'd call him the Russian or the asset or the source. Even when I said the name, their acknowledging yet anguished expressions said everything their lips wouldn't. Yes, that's the name. No, I am not happy you know it. I'm even less happy you said it. Can you please unsay it? His code name was Mr. Pym. His actual identity was not publicly known until it appeared in a 2019 audiobook by David Wise called Seven Million Dollar Spy. Mr. Pym was really Alexander V. Sherbakov. We feel comfortable saying it because Alexander Sherbakov doesn't exist anymore. Our sources told us he's living somewhere in the United States under a new name and new identity. He's believed to be alive, and our sources fear that if Russian intelligence could get its hands on him, or its poison in him, they would. Mr. Pym's identity was meant to be kept secret forever. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. When art dealer Bill Stout walked out of the Benjamin Hotel, so did Mr. Pym. Outside, a veteran FBI agent named Mike Rochford approached Mr. Pym on the street. How you doing? I don't know him from Adam. He looks at me like I'm goofy and says, hey, who are you? I give him a business card. He looks at it. He says, uh, what do you want? It's well, let's sit down. Let's just sit down here and have a drink. He said, I don't drink with strangers. And I said, well, okay, don't have a drink. I'll sit down and have a beer with some water. Rochford wouldn't talk to us for this podcast, but he's spoken about the case here and there over the years. This tape is from an event he did at the International Spy Museum in 2013. So I pitched lots and lots of Russians. Rochford spent a significant part of his career looking to recruit sources like Mr. Pym, whom he had just approached in New York. And he says, you know, I'm, what I'm going to do with this business card, he says, I'm going to go to the Russian mission to the United Nations give this to the security officer and have him take that to the New York Times and we're going to put it on the front of the New York Times that you have ruined my business opportunity as a former Russian diplomat and your name will be all over the front page of the Times for being a provocateur. A threat. Rochford had a pretty good feel for these things. He called Mr. Pym's bluff. 
I said, probably that's fiction. Probably nobody at the New York Times gives a rat's ass about you. But I care about you. I want to make you the most successful Russian-American businessman in the history of our two countries. This is serious. Only the director of the CIA and the director of the FBI know that I'm here. Nobody else. Maybe not literally true, but Rochford wanted to convey the gravity of his offer to Mr. Pym. Rochford suggested they have breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day he was in town. To start, dinner that night would be lobster for two, courtesy of Uncle Sam. Mr. Pym agreed and showed up a few hours later, having had a bit to drink. So he shows up and he's a little off balance and I don't blame him. And we go and have a dinner and he's um, very aggressive, pretty much telling me that you can forget it, I'll never cooperate and I should just pack my bags and go home. I go back and talk to my team and say, it's not going to work. I understand when you ask somebody to dance and they don't want to dance, you don't dance, you know. Mike Rochford's team in New York would huddle after his hostile encounters with Mr. Pym. We have code names for everyone, everything that we do, every operation. But um, this one, we almost, we jokingly said, we're going to change this to F you, Mike. <laughs> because that was said so often <laughs> um, while he was working and trying to, trying to recruit. That is former FBI agent Deborah Smith. She was part of the team recruiting the Russian source. It's mainly a, a white male world. Most times, especially working counterintelligence, I'm the only black person in the room and sometimes the only woman in the room. This was especially true in the early 2000s. Smith did 27 years in the FBI. When she first applied to be an agent, the Bureau sent her away because she was barely five feet tall and didn't meet the 97-pound weight minimum. She spent a year bulking up. Nine pounds heavier, she reapplied and got in. When I first became an agent, I made it a point that I did not want to work gangs. I didn't want to work drugs. I didn't want to go after black people, especially, like, for low-level crimes. I just didn't want to do it, and I never did it. But with undercover work with counterintelligence, which was what I wanted to do, I just had a passion for it, it was always yes, <laughs> a yes for me. And this case with Mr. Pym had the potential to be a career maker. We knew there was a possibility that this individual had a lot of information and, and could actually resolve a lot for us based on their background. But getting Mr. Pym to talk was never going to be easy. And, and if you think about this, if someone approaches you and, and is asking you, in essence, to betray your country, they're asking an awful lot. So that's asking more than anyone usually ever asks of anyone. Smith and her colleagues encouraged Rochford to keep pursuing the Russian, despite the friction. As long as someone is talking to you, there's a chance. Even if they're telling you no, even if they're telling you hell no, even if they're a little belligerent and saying, you know, get away from me, I don't want to talk to you, but they're talking, you in your mind think there's still a chance here and we're going to, to go after it because this is important. 
This back and forth, the meals, the boozing, went on for about 10 days. Rochford called it the hardest recruitment of his career. They kept kicking me out the door, and I didn't want to go. Until, at last, Rochford had a whiskey-soaked breakthrough. And finally, we had a, a Tullamore Dew and some Irish bar. Oh, we used to call it, tell me more, dude. He says, uh, I'd like to tell you about something. And he starts telling me about something. And the specifics of which I won't go into, but it was very startling. So he says, I can tell you everything about it. He said, but it's important that we have trust. Mr. Pym told Rochford something extraordinary, something that Rochford had been waiting to hear for years. Back in Russia, he had squirreled away a collection of letters exchanged between the KGB and a mole in the U.S. intelligence community. The notes were mostly in Russian, rich in detail, and written between 1985 and 1991. Mr. Pym couldn't discern the mole's identity from the papers or where he worked, only that the FBI would salivate over the dossier he'd kept in a garage outside Moscow. So we said, okay, we'll take that bet. He said, well, I have some forensic information, too, that you might want that I'll put in there, too. As the Soviet Union imploded in the early 90s, and with it, Mr. Pym's KGB career, he had made a shrewd calculation. He had decided to steal one of the Kremlin's most valuable files, one that had reams of meticulous notes about a prolific but unidentified American mole, known to them only by their KGB codenames, Boris and Carrot. The new Russian government of the early 90s shut down the Soviet-era KGB. Vaults of files had to be moved. In all the chaos, no one noticed the missing file. This was around the time when Hansen went dark as a spy. Mr. Pym was the ex-KGB golden goose that Hansen may have been afraid of. Mr. Pym had kept the file as a hedge against abject poverty. He would try to make it on his own, but if worst came to worst, the file could become a tidy retirement nest egg. By the time Mr. Pym ended up in New York in mid-2000, he was struggling financially, and it was time to come to roost. So we, we go to a room, and we negotiate, I'll call it a contract, what he wanted and what we were willing to provide. To start, the U.S. government would provide a good-faith down payment of somewhere between $500,000 and a million dollars. The FBI refused to chip in, given that so many of these approaches ended with nothing. But the CIA director came through with the money. A CIA employee took the train from Washington to New York to deliver the cash. The agency paid the money, God bless them. And they're very good about that. Rochford and Mr. Pym watched Fourth of July fireworks from a yacht and toasted the Russians' newfound wealth. He would stand to make millions more. That night, on the river, Mr. Pym told Rochford they were going to change history. Rochford concurred. But this was just the first step. Now they had to figure out how to get the dossier out of Russia and safely into U.S. hands. After fireworks on the river, the FBI bid Mr. Pym safe passage back to Russia with instructions on how to reconnect there. It was the summer of 2000. The FBI leaned on the CIA station in Moscow to get the package back to Washington and protect Mr. Pym. Were you nervous then? Yes. 
I think we all were. That again is former FBI agent Deborah Smith. About what? Oh, about about the individual being approached, uh, questioned, um, what's going to happen. Um, Executed? uh, Yes. Are they still going to be able to be in touch with us? Had Russian authorities detected the operation to extract the file, they would have no doubt intervened. Back in Russia, the CIA arranged a meeting with Mr. Pym. But Mr. Pym was a no-show, and that put the FBI on edge. I called him out again. I said, are you okay? And he said, ah, yeah, I just missed it. He said, let's set up a new one. That's Mike Rochford again, the FBI agent who recruited Mr. Pym in New York. The recording is from an interview he did with author Lee Sweel for her book, A Spy in Plain Sight. Rochford had the CIA set up a second clandestine rendezvous. To that meeting, Mr. Pym brought a small gift, an appetizer. Information about one case the mole had compromised. He said, and I brought with me one case that was compromised that I know that this guy was personally involved in and had something to do with, and here you go. And he gave us this case. And it was a double agent case that was, believe it or not, run by Kelly. (laughs) At the time, U.S. intelligence still believed that CIA officer Brian Kelly was their mole. And this was yet one more piece of circumstantial evidence that appeared to confirm their hunch. So we took a look at it, and it was like, oh, shit. A few months later, the CIA contacted Mr. Pym for the big handoff, the main event. A CIA officer took the package to a safe location, and she slept with it that night. The next day, it was shipped out of the country via diplomatic mail. Its destination? The lab at FBI headquarters on Pennsylvania Avenue. Also bound for America? Mr. Pym himself and his family. As part of the government's deal with Mr. Pym, the CIA agreed to resettle him and his family in the United States under assumed identities and provide them plenty of spending money. Some say $7 million. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. There's a lot involved, you know, because you have to talk about annuities and retraining and resettlements and blah, 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 you know, cars, houses, all that stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Seven million dollars. Blah, blah, blah. But U.S. intelligence would get its money's worth. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
By fall of 2000, Justice Department prosecutors were getting close to charging Brian Kelly with espionage. There was circumstantial evidence that fit Kelly, but it fell short of conclusive, mostly because the FBI had never caught Kelly in the act of spying or extracted a confession. The case would have been tough at trial, but it was all they had. Mr. Pym's dossier arrived in Washington the first week of November. It was met by a throng of FBI agents at Dulles Airport who carefully transported it to headquarters in a black vehicle. Evidence teams were waiting in the lab. The vast majority of it was in Russian. We pulled all of the Russian linguists in the office into a room and gave them all computers and documents, and they started translating. That's Deborah Smith again, the squad leader assigned to the case. Everything that was translated was like quality control checked by another speaker, and the analysts started pouring through that information as it was being translated. FBI analysts swooned over the file. It took about 10 days to get everything organized and translated. Among the analysts, Bob King and Jim Milburn, two that had worked closely together before, literally. Back in the 80s, they'd shared a cubicle with their supervisor, Robert Hansen. King and Milburn were so eager to get their hands on the material, lab techs had to shoo them away until the files had been copied and logged. The file wasn't paper only. There was an audio cassette, too. The team of investigators gathered in a semicircle around Deborah Smith's desk to listen to the tape. They leaned in, expecting to hear Brian Kelly's voice. This is Jim Milburn. Out loud, I said, it isn't him. It's not him. I knew his voice, and I said, that's not his voice. No one could identify it. The other analyst, Bob King. I said, no, I have no idea who that is. It's not Brian Kelly, I know that. One other item was in the file, a black trash bag that had been tucked inside the larger package, a matryoshka doll, if you will. On it was a note from Mr. Pym, Deborah Smith again. It was written in Russian, do not open, and we had to decide what to do at that point. Do we open it (laughs) or do we not open it? And we decided not to. When Mr. Pym arrived safely in the U.S., he explained that the trash bag was recovered from a drop the mole had made. If there were fingerprints on it all these years later, they belonged to the mole. They sent the trash bag out for testing, but it would take weeks for results. Milburn and King then went to work on the letters. There was a chronology there of meetings, exchanges with the Russians, between the Mole and the Russians. And so what I did was looked at those dates of those exchanges. They poured over the times and places that drops had occurred and compared them to Brian Kelly's whereabouts. They didn't line up. He was in uh, Australia at the time of these particular things that happened, and he, and he just couldn't have done that. I said, well, God, who, does that mean we're starting over from scratch? I began to study the messages he had passed to the Russians. The puzzle started to come together. And about halfway through my review, I said, this is looking, I said out loud even, this is looking more and more like an FBI problem. Milburn noticed something vaguely familiar in the letters, phrases, and references that he knew he'd heard somewhere. He included certain items that were personal, more personal in nature. 
not, not completely identifiable, but they were too personal. One was a reference to the, quote, purple-pissing Japanese, an odd phrase. It was a term, a derogatory term, Patton, I think, used in World War II. He also noted the letters referenced Chicago, Mayor Daly, and someone named Jack. I was reading quickly through, and one after another, and I said, I know, I know this, I, I know who this is, you know, without actually thinking of the name. Adrenaline coursed through Milburn's body. And then it just said, I know who it is, it's got to be him. It's too, the matches are too close. Milburn reached for the closest thing he could find, a pink note card, which he keeps to this day. It was the only thing I could find to write on. To this day, I don't know what, why I wrote it this way, but I wrote it phonetically, his, his name phonetically, instead of the way his true name is written. And I wrote Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N. <laughs> Milburn turned to King and showed him the card. I said, no way, no way. Couldn't be Hanson, no. We've known him too long and too well. He just wouldn't do that. Back in the 80s, King would go to lunch with Hanson. They attended the Apple Pie Computer Club meetings together. They knew each other's families a bit. No, it just couldn't be. That was your initial reaction? That was my initial reaction. It just could not walked, possibly be could Bob Hanson. could not possibly be Bob Hanson. I said, let me, let me listen to that tape again. It was around 8 o'clock at night. They headed for the vault, where investigators kept the voice recording. The vault is a small triangular room on the fourth floor of FBI headquarters where two hallways converge. Milburn and King pulled on headphones and hit play. Is if everything is okay? I believe it should be fine, and thank you very much. Not at all. Not at all. Nice job for both of us. Have a nice evening, sir. Hearing that voice on the tape brought Milburn and King right back to the 1980s when they'd shared a cubicle with their supervisor, Robert Hansen. My God, it was like years ago when we were sitting right next to each other. That's how clear it was that it was him. His voice was so clear. Bob Hansen never came on my mind. But having Hansen in my brain listening to it, I thought, oh God, yes. Absolutely, that is him. Did you have a physical reaction? Oh, God, God, yeah. I mean, just, just, just thinking initially, oh my God, what would he have learned from me? The bit in the letter about purple pissing Japanese? That was a phrase Hansen used with some frequency. There was also the reference to Chicago, his hometown, to Mayor Daly, a man Hansen deeply admired, and to Jack. Hanson's best friend, who had visited the cubicle they had shared with Hanson. But you have to understand that I knew all this because I sat beside him, okay? Was there any emotion then that you felt? I would think I was drained at that point. Um, I never get angry at spies, even if they're ours, because I kind of, I live for this stuff. I live for spy catching. I hate to say it this way, but it was like part of the game, you know? He lost, but it was part of the game. It was mixed feeling because it was, uh, oh my God, we got him at last. And 
How could he have been that close and I not have seen it in all of these years that I've known him? King is 80 now, a widower, and lives on the water near Annapolis, Maryland. He's retired after 40 years in the intelligence community. Like many, King found Hanson quirky, but never suspected anything. Everybody knew he was weird, and so weirdness was not unusual for him. But it wasn't menacing either. It was just weird. Jim Milburn recently left the Bureau. He told us that back in the 80s, he and Hanson traveled together for work sometimes and would attend Bureau events together. They weren't really friends outside of work. Milburn was part of the lunch crew, so he liked to talk shop over lunch. Yes, right. What would uh, Bob typically eat? Oh, he was very basic. He was a hamburger, french fries, and also, uh, for a strange thing, he either ordered a Coke or, or, or milk. And Hansen would often pick up the tab. Milburn now realizes who was paying for his lunch. He would say, oh, don't worry, I'll, I'll pick it up for you. And, of course, not knowing at the time, I was having lunch on the Russians' uh, dime, you know. <laughs> the morning after Milburn and King's astonishing revelation, they briefed a small team on their analysis, including Mike Rochford, the agent who recruited Mr. Pym. Rochford called in his typical voice. Mike Rochford here. Uh, What's this shit about? We got the wrong guy? The higher-ups got briefed that afternoon. The Bureau stopped its work on CIA man Brian Kelly and opened a case against one of its own. FBI Special Agent Robert Philip Hansen. Getting other spies is a luxury, but making sure that you don't have any of your own, penetrating your own organization is a necessity. The fingerprint analysis on the plastic trash bag eventually confirmed what investigators already knew. It was a match for Hansen, making Mr. Pym the biggest, baddest bagman in Cold War history. Once you started looking at Hansen, everything fell into place. It all fell into place but it wouldn't be as simple as showing up to his house with handcuffs. If investigators wanted to bring a case against Hansen, punishable by the death penalty, they would have to catch him in the act of spying. So, they hatched a plan. We will offer Hansen an opportunity to work directly for me. We were playing on his ego. But they'd have to tiptoe carefully. We knew that he was prone to violence, but we didn't know how far he'd go. That's next time on Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. This series was reported by me, Major Garrett, Arden Fari, and Sarah Cook. Our team of reporters and producers also includes Jamie Benson, Pat Milton, Jake Rosen, and Nellie Watson. Our producing partner is Neon Hum Media. Our senior producer is Odelia Rubin. Zoe Culkin is our associate producer. Original music and sound design by Hans Dale Shee. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. 
Executive producers for Agent of Betrayal are Arden Fari, Shara Morris, and me, Major Garrett. Special thanks to Mark Lima, Megan Marcus, Ingrid Cyprian Matthews, and Steve Racies of CBS News, and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. We welcome you to contact us at agentofbetrayal at cbsnews.com. That's agentofbetrayal at cbsnews.com. Our thanks to C-SPAN, the International Spy Museum, and Lee Sweel, author of A Spy in Plain Sight. Thanks for listening. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Join me, 48 Hours correspondent Erin Moriarty, on my podcast, My Life of Crime, as I take on true crime investigations like no other. This season... I'm looking into the secrets within families, cutting straight to the evidence and talking to the people directly involved. Enjoy My Life of Crime on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on Wondery Plus.